Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbors. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbors with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasized consideration towards one neighbors so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbor would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favorite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbor. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the Day of Judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim Three ahadith that prove that a Prophet can still come after the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ahmadi Muslims hold the belief that the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the Khatimun Nabiyyin, the seal of the Prophets. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, La Nabiya Ba'di, there is no Prophet after me. And we as Ahmadi Muslims fully accept this hadith. We also believe that no law-bearing Prophet can come after the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. However, it is possible for a follower Prophet, one who follows the Prophet وسلم, and is from among his Ummah to attain the status of Prophethood as a subordinate. Here are three ahadith that support this view. One, the Holy Prophet Muhammad وسلم, when speaking of the Messiah of the latter days, referred to him as Nabiullahi Isa, the Prophet of Allah Isa. He repeated this four times, the Prophet of Allah Isa making it very clear that the person who was to appear in the latter days to reform the Muslims would be a prophet. 2. When the son of the Holy Prophet Muhammad وسلم, Ibrahim passed away, the Holy Prophet وسلم, said, if he had lived, he would have become a prophet. Now it's worth noting that the verse of the Holy Quran in which the Holy Prophet Muhammad is called Khatimun Nabiyyin, seal of the prophets, was revealed before the death of Ibrahim. The Holy Prophet could have said, if Ibrahim had lived, 
he could never become a prophet because I am the seal of the prophets. However, the fact that he did not say this, and he said that he would become a prophet if he had lived, shows that the Prophet ﷺ interpreted the seal of prophethood to mean that a follower prophet can indeed appear after him. And this is also the Ahmadiyya view. 3. In another hadith, the Holy Prophet Muhammad ﷺ speaks about the establishment of Khilafah in Islam. He says that after his prophethood, Khilafah will be established on the precepts of prophethood which will then be raised after some time. This will be followed by despotic rule, which will then be raised. After this will come tyrannical rule, which will also be raised after some time. And finally, the Holy Prophet Muhammad says, Khilafa on the precepts of prophethood will be established. Now this makes it very clear that Khilafah can only be established after the advent of a Prophet. And this is what all Muslims believe. They believe that when Jesus, the Messiah, will return, after him, Khilafah will be re-established. However, we as Ahmadi Muslims believe that Allah has already sent that person. He has already appointed a person from among the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad, a follower of the Prophet Muhammad He has raised him as a Prophet and after him Khilafah was established. That person is Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, may peace be upon him, after whom Khilafat was re-established. Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You are joined myself, Umar Bhatti, and my two co hosts, Hamad Khan and Takreem Malik. Welcome, guys, uh, to the show. How are we doing? Yeah, no, not bad. Um, once again, butchered my name as always. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm delighted. It's been a Saturday morning. I was trying to pull out all night till last night and oh, nice. um, do some work, but I managed to get some few hours sleep in, so. Um, inshallah this, this morning goes well good good no, it's great I, I always love coming in studio coming back to London love yep. it miss it that is great to hear yeah um, it's quite sunny as you as you may have heard and um, have experienced outside bit warm bit, and slight slide chill but uh, we'll see how the day, day days go I mean I'm going to barbecue later so uh, I'll be enjoying it for one more time <laughs> but uh, other than that other than our personal life we're, we're looking forward to the show we've got a uh, 
packed show again. We'll start off with the news roundup, but uh, we have a few stuff to talk through, which includes uh, the youth convention that all three of us attended. Uh, we'll do a bit of reflection on that. We have the Tory party conference. Um, you know, it's sort of put conference season, and within just uh, over a year left uh, till next year, winter time, or even before then, people are talking. We'll be talking about uh, the conference itself and the political landscape that is shaping up to be with a recent by-election that took place in Scotland, which uh, is uh, pointing towards um, a Labour um, majority government or at least a Labour-led government. And then finally, we'll, we'll go into our health review with our two health experts that we have here uh, wanting to push this agenda by ending it also with some good news and hopefully with my agenda, a bit of sports as well. But nevertheless, uh, we'll start off with the... Um, uh, sport, uh, news roundup. Uh, which one of you guys wants wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. Yeah. Um, I, had, I saw a news article the other day. The other day that was seemed quite um, relevant. Actually, it was about the uh, ADHD medication shortage in uh, the NHS in, the, in England. Um, quite interesting. Um, as you know, ADHD is quite personal to me. I was diagnosed a few years ago. Um, I didn't. I did take medication for a while. Um, although try and I try and use lifestyle changes to, to manage it. Um, but. Beyond the beyond this, it was interesting for me to see that the pharmaceutical industry in the, in the England had developed to that point that we're having shortages of such essential medications. You know, ADHD is one of you know quite commonly diagnosed uh, uh, you know condition in the UK. I think three to four percent of the UK population actually have have been diagnosed with some form so of ADHD. So, what, what is ADHD? That's a very good point. I forgot that um, <laughs> <laughs> there's some uh, non-dicks in the in the room. Exactly. <laughs> ADHD, ADHD stands for. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, recently, I believe it was renamed to ADD. Um, so the hyperactivity element was removed because not everyone has symptoms of hyperactivity. But essentially, it's related to the lack of dopamine being produced or you know available in the bloodstream, uh, in the brain. And that lack of dopamine means that people with ADHD or ADD have trouble concentrating, uh, in troubles with discipline, time management, um, being distracted easily uh, and so on and so forth so kind of you know a fair few symptoms um and it's also linked to i think uh, slightly to autism perhaps but i'm not too sure about that there's a slightly there as well um but it comes into the neurodivergent kind of uh, conditions um and so adhd is a recognized learning disability and there's a lot of disability well-being support available for people diagnosed with adhd and uh, for example extra time in exams that kind of stuff which is very useful for my uh, medical exams obviously trying to cheat <laughs> well i don't know about that one um but yeah, uh, but the point is that it's a very common condition, and unfortunately, the NHS doesn't seem to be having, you know, medication for it. Enough medication. In fact, there was the BBC article talked about someone from Manchester who had to ration a prescription, which, as me and Hamad know as medics, is is very, very concerning because prescriptions are given for a specific, you know, a specific dose for a specific time period, um, and anything that alters that is can be quite damaging, especially with some with medications that alter your brain chemistry, um, as ADHD does, for example, because it, it causes release of dopamine uh, neurotransmitter in your brain. Um, so it's quite concerning to read that as as a medic, um, and I'm not gonna, I'm not sure how that comes across to Umar, but for me and Ahmad especially, I will speak for myself mainly. Um, it's quite concerning to see that the NHS is. There's so many things in NHS now are happening that are affecting the quality of life of patients. And again, I hate that we keep coming back to strikes and NHS and the doom and gloom again. But these kind of things really, when you see it 
from as a, from a medical point of view and also from a global health point of view, you really think that what kind of policies are our government implementing to kind of combat that and why are these kind of things, misdemeanors happening all the time? Not even from a medical perspective, but just a layman's perspective. Mm. You look at what's going on, so confused as why can this not be sorted out really quickly or what is what what what, what is our government because at the end of the day they are mm. entrusted with this position mm. right and of course you have different political views or a bit different uh, political uh, perspective of how it should be run which is fine but uh, we know we're in a, it's what well, been i, I want to say it's nearly been a year it feels like more than a year or even 2 3 years that we've been in this uh, cycle of strikes mm. not just from the health service but other different services that are affecting day to day life which in turn affect you know everyone's day-to-day feeling yeah and uh it's it's ba- it is baffling because you can see that uh, what they want is uh, uh is, is reasonable to them but may not be reasonable to to the people in power i think i think what this speaks to actually is the fact that there's a general consensus and unfortunate appreciation that we're just having worse off health and well-being yeah. in, in our society and you know having the lack of essential medication I, I just see tweets all the time now saying I don't know what to do I'm suffering from withdrawal symptoms I'm you know whatever it's quite it's quite dangerous um, and, and we'll talk about this with the Conservative Party conference because this all like you said you had the summer of strikes you know there's mm. narratives of the junior doctors are asking too much but then are the teachers asking too much are yeah. the trained wor- workers asking too how, how can every essential work how, in society how do you determine it, well, surely it's pointing to a bigger uh, systemic issue. If every mm. essential worker in society is saying this isn't enough, you're not. I'm not being, you know, paid appropriately. I'm not being afforded good working conditions. Yeah. That's surely pointing to a bigger issue. I agree, and I want to take you back to the article yeah, because yeah. I think this specific example really kind of, for me, kind of brought it home. The, the person in the article they were talking about um, from Manchester, she said she'd rationed herself to take a medication instead of five times a week but three times a week. Mm. And so on some days she would have a medication and the medication lasts for about 12 hours, 14 hours. So essentially for half the week she's not on a medication. And as someone who's you know, seen the effects of medication, the effects of ADHD, that's a massive difference in productivity, in mental health, in kind of your, your well-being. The person describing how on the days where she didn't take a medication, she's in bed all day, she's sluggish, she can't do her work. <laughs> now thinking in terms of from a, a broader point of view, from a, a sustained point of view, that means as a person, as a worker in the economy, you're not contributing to the economy. No. You know, you're... you're you're putting more pressure on health services, your mental health is going down, your long-term decline, both on a personal and societal point of view, you're, you know, you're, there's a lot of suffering going on here and there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, bad effects of it. And this shortage is only uh, in the UK right now or does the article mention whether it's worldwide or it's affecting other places or would you know personally? So uh, I believe this is affecting the UK mentioned the moment, mostly. Right, um, there were I have heard of uh, medication shortages due to I think COVID. There was a lot of transport issues there. Mm. Uh, a few, a few. Uh, I think I've also read uh, in past months that Germany yeah. has been struggling with uh, mm-hmm. medical shortages as well. Because I remember my my dad was still medical pharmacist. I remember he was telling me a few months ago there was a there was a shortage of uh, some other medication as well. Mm. And um, I can I can I've been actually I think it was. Um, it was an antibiotic. It wasn't penicillin. It was uh, one of the common antibiotics that was in I shortage was a few months ago. Paracetamol. No, it wasn't. Don't worry. Lots of paracetamol don't want to go around. Um, I the fact that you said paracetamol. <laughs> antibiotic. <laughs> Walk past that. Yeah, just, just yeah. We're gonna we're gonna move on. Yeah. Gonna get, uh, All right. No, that was great. I think. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we've grown. We've we've gone to this. You know, UK schools. Um, uh, you know, uh, being rude or not, but you could tell people who are who were ADHD. They weren't concentrating a lot, and you could uh, see who they were. But well, I, well, I have, I have a point to say to this because there is the. Ca- 
counter side to this whole argument and a lot of doctors have seen a surge in ADHD okay. diagnosis mm. and, and they're, they're, they're quite worried well because you have TikTok and where, mm. wherever else where people are exposing their diagnosis stories and that's absolutely brilliant you're destigmatizing medication and diagnosis and disorder but then people are oh I have that too and then it becomes mm. into your normal vocabulary oh I have ADHD it becomes like um, it literally becomes a language meme it becomes a vocabulary meme mm. where you just keep repeating and repeating and repeating it until it enters your psyche and you inhabit this thing of I also perhaps have ADHD yeah. a level of attention dis- uh, you know deficit is normal right I, um, I've i got at least 60 tabs on at the same time I have to you know almost just right checking now. my screen <laughs> uh, that's just one window yeah. um, oh. <laughs> I, so, so there's a level of attention deficit that normally happens what we're actually seeing because of the NHS pressures is there's a lot of digital health tech startups that are mm-hmm. offering private clinic uh, for ADHD medication and so a lot of people are being forced to go to them because it's a quicker diagnosis a quicker checkup and it's unvetted um, access to the medication so people are self-diagnosing themselves with saying that they're ADHD essentially or it's self-reporting un- it's self-reporting, yeah. self-reporting symptoms and there's no um, wider regulatory body that's looking at actually are they diagnosed okay. by it and we're giving access to medications not trying to say that that's driving the unnecessary mm-hmm. Um, reducing um, medication yeah. but that, that that is something that we have to consider mm-hmm. the ADHD medication that we have we it was already put on a watch list so it, to actually get the diagnosis to get the medication you had to undergo quite quite a few steps even the doctors would have to um, you won't get it in initial screening process it's a, it's a multi-step process uh, but I think that also speaks to how unfortunate it is for those that were already on medication because it's such a hard journey to get that medication you feel that relief you feel the symptoms waning you can feel that your, your quality of life is getting better and now for very unnecessary reasons you're not having access to better healthcare yeah I think it slipped my mind for a second that Ahmad Saab is very experienced in the field of social prescribing and that whole area of ADHD uh, you know of prescribing has been a thing for many many years now and I, I do agree in part for example that the whole rise in you know health education is a good thing but sometimes it can be a bad thing um, I was also read some research that even the whole you know Instagram and, and TikTok and the whole you know the whole swiping culture for example that is contributing itself to physiological change um, leading to more cases of ADHD mm. um, but I remember when, when when I had my, for example, my diagnosis about 2021, two, three years ago now, two years ago, um, I had those eight month long, uh, you know, wait period. I had to wait for a specialist uh, consultant in mental health to see me, for example. Um, and that, I guess, then that was around COVID time, that might have exacerbated it slightly as well. But, you know, that was a whole process that I had to go through as well. But, mm. you know, as a medic at the time, I remember, you know, ADHD was one of those conditions where there's no kind of definitive medical clinical indicator which you can point to and say, okay, this blood test says that this is wrong, therefore you have ADHD. It's a diagnostic, it's a software, it's a, I'm sorry, it's a questionnaire, right? Yeah. Um, and so you can essentially almost lie about your symptoms or over-exaggerate them. The questionnaire is designed, of course, to kind of uh, establish to what extent is your def- deficit, for example. But I, I completely agree with you, there's definitely scope in there for people to misinterpret interpret their own experiences you know not saying they're doing it on purpose no. um, don't want to say that they're lying or anything but mm. they have a, they might have a tendency to exaggerate for example or overestimate their level of attention deficit um, which I think is a very interesting conversation and you know it could again be driving that um, that, that medication surge but I would agree because this is this particular case, for example, it's a very acute kind of exacerbation, and the ADHD levels have been rising for a number of years now. For example, I think this points more towards kind of deeper factors within the pharmaceutical industry itself, the supply and demand, etc. Um, and perhaps also that you mentioned the, the health tech. Uh, you know, I wasn't aware of, of the the new startups that were doing kind of 
quick and easy ADHD medication, uh, ADHD diagnosis, um, reminds me, I think there's there's medical diagnosis and there's almost like an informal diagnosis through university I know you can get as well. I, I remember there's, there's two pathways where my friends, he was having symptoms as, as well. Um, and so he could either wait nine months for a referral like I did for medical diagnosis, mm. or he could go to his, you know, um, the university kind of mm. support team, disability team, and they could give him like a kind of an informal diagnosis, which I thought found interesting because it, it meant he couldn't be prescribed medications, but he was eligible for the extra time and that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. So that's a, you know, that's a new thing for me yeah. as well. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, uh, thank you very much for that first topic. I guess, Hamad, we can go to you. I'm going to pivot off to from medications to bugs. So oh, I, wow. I, I, I couldn't stop oh, laughing. Yes. I know you guys already know this story as well. Um, Bed bugs taking over Paris. <laughs> so apparently, there's a huge infestation um, within uh, the French capital. And the Eurostar staff were on high alert, saying that there's a huge infestation. We can't get rid of it. They have about an eight to 12 month lifespan as well. So the fact that you've got a huge infestation, a huge population number means that they're not going away anytime soon. There was this sort of undercurrent conversation, which a lot of people thought was quite interesting, which is that now French authorities are asking um, the citizens to wear longer coverings so that you prevent, you know, um, any any sort of um, bites and uh, infestations. It just helps it keep everything cleaner. And at the same time, you had the whole political conversation of not allowing the buyers and the mm. French girls um, in their schools access to education if they're wearing their buyers. Mm. Not going to say more on that. Keep make that what you will. Mm. I find that interesting. Uh, nonetheless. But it does directly affect us also because from Eurostar to London is about a 40 minute train journey. Mm. Um, and because the, you know these uh, bed bugs can survive, it's actually now a critical issue for London and the UK. So, what do we do? A lockdown? Oh, we're locked down. <laughs> well, it's inter- apparently so someone did a, a TFL freedom of information request and they don't do any cleaning to their seats oh, at God. all. Which, I mean, regardless of the bed bugs, is yeah. quite interesting. Um, but so th- th- I think there has to be some special measures put in place so that we actually prevent this infestation because it can, will perhaps maybe come, come, come to London too. We're not so far off. I think that's interesting. One of my flatmates actually was meant to go to Paris next week or in two weeks for the reading week, and he was really stressing about about this. Um, mm. This is uh, we were having a chat about this in the kitchen the other day, um, and then I went into my lecture, and you know, someone from my course, for example, she's actually from uh, France, um, uh, from Paris herself, mm. um, and you know, she was saying that apparently it's not too bad, mm. um, but there definitely is a rising problem. Um, so she was in France last week um, and again her experiences as a hijabi living in, in, in France are interesting as well she's spoken a little bit about, about how the the extremity or the kind of the, the religious aspect of, of, of France really is makes it almost unbearable for Muslims practicing their faith or for people her for example um, to stay in France which is one reason why she came here to do a masters um, but again I think that whole conversation is, is a very interesting one I'm not sure we're going to go into it today um, but it's funny how you know a simple thing like bed bugs can kind of <laughs> reflect the overall impact of yeah. your I was just going to say it's, it's, I kind of find it quite hilarious that we're now all associating the French <laughs> image with bed you're like oh you got bed bugs like, yeah. you know it's like a national <laughs> yeah. it's, it's perhaps sort of embarrassing you know um, I mean yeah. these these things can spread as we know so yeah. um, I mean travel I mean what what uh, is, is there any mention in the article about any restrictions that uh, 
um, maybe on borders that they're going to place or check people because they were going through bags as well I heard so yeah so there was extra security measures extra hygiene and cleaning measures but so far nothing put in place about border border control just or any you know stopping gotta make sure they find those bugs and uh, dispose of them as quick as possible yeah. otherwise they'll be sleeping next to you soon yeah you <laughs> said then done but um, yeah. that's a public health policy uh, public problem health. right there we've got we've got two public health specialists I would say <laughs> health specialists not yet at the end of this year yet, <laughs> oh yet. okay end of this year fair enough no, but yeah no that's uh, that was one of the big big stories I guess yeah uh, we'll go to one more news story uh, for this time and um, I guess um, this is a news story that when we're pretty familiar around but um, I'm just looking at this perspective from the uh, Law Gazette that I found it and again the di- title goes as four day week has caused turnover spikes as um, law firm boss, uh, boss sorry um, it has, has seen a boost of turnover by 22% um, and um, it has also seen increased pro- productivity improved well-being and it has also acted as an important draw in recruiting top talent uh, within uh, city firms um, and it's really just um if you think about it, uh, we I think there's been a lot of trials going around the country about four day week and um, mm. how would you fit that in? And um, I guess in this uh, scenario, this instance, um, you know, they, they are citing that it's not about cramming 47 hours within four days, but it's actually just working uh, the same amount you are over the four days, but using extra tools to help you to combat the 20% of work that can be done. And in, in this instance, he says AI tools have uh, helped them save time and achieve the same or more in less time uh, so it's about whether we can implement the four day weekend uh, across the board and whether we can look to um, assist um, people or you know people who are working uh, with tools to get the other, other other stuff done where they don't need to actually cram the 40 hour plus into the work I, I, I do think you know the four day work week does increase productivity I think we all need to just increase productivity why would you not for the sake of a four day mm. weekend um, it, it goes without saying this. I, I'm not really sure where this conversation started but I know Tim Ferriss you know renowned entrepreneur came up with the concept of like uh, improving your productivity to save time and save you know money and create your own life and design your own life he came up with his concept of the four day work week um, but uh, I, I find it interesting because I, I can't imagine just unnecessarily going into the office. I, I, I went into an office, two major offices, Elsevier this week and then uh, somewhere else. Um, and I was asking them, two, they go to the office two days a week, they work two days a week, uh, two, two extra other days. Um, so it, it seems like it's not... Two days a week? No, no, no. Two, uh, office two days <clears throat> and then So you're talking, about, uh, you're talking more about hybrid systems. Yeah, and it still works. still a four day, yeah, yeah. 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 That's interesting. I was speaking to a friend of mine, um, same age as when he graduated, you know, with undergrad in computer science and now works in the city. And he was saying, um, and he was saying actually hybrid working, he found it in some ways a bit more difficult than, than, than coming into the office. With the office as well, you can leave all your work in the office, right? You can, as I say, you know, you've, you're there from, you commute there, you do your work and you go home. But with the hybrid present work, a lot of times you're actually being on social hours for example you're having to work you know in your own free time and yeah. that divide between work and personal life is becoming quite blurred but yeah. I think when you have that four day w- work week mm-hmm. you have that time then to claim back with your friends and families mm-hmm. and whatever else mm-hmm. uh, I, I actually agree with the, uh, high, um, the fact that there are some um, how would you say drawbacks of work uh, mm-hmm. having hybrid hybrid work because even I I, I I have a hybrid system I go into the office twice a week and um, work three days at home 
but now I've started actually going on Mondays into the office because I feel I can sometimes do more work when I'm in the office mm. and I just want to be a bit more sociable I can't, I can't be asked to be at home watching TV and doing work just doing the same thing every single time mm. even though I get to f- leave early uh, you know whenever whatever time I want uh, it's, it's, it, the social aspect of life it just doesn't feel the same when you're home of course I've got family there but you don't want to be around family 24 so <laughs> I, I, I family think it's also th- th- that routine you're going into office you've got the commute time yeah. It, it's yeah I, I don't think you can take that away I think some people do enjoy that mm. um, but would you guys want a four day work week whenever you get to your professions I guess it's tough you know uh, yes yeah. I'd like to try it, try it. I think to try it, I think there, there should be some sort of trial at least for a, around. Okay, what would you do in the other four non-working days then? Three. Three. Three, I can count. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. If I would get a Friday off yeah. as being my, you know, the extra day I get off, then, you know, I'd have time to go to uh, Juma. Yeah. Because I hardly get time to go to Juma. Friday uh, prayers, yeah. Uh, Friday prayers, yeah, you're right. And uh, probably use the extra day to go cycle around as well. Nice, nice. That was so you wouldn't double up on work and no. try and do another job uh, on the side? or? Oh, good question. Good question. Uh, the question is, would I be able to uh, get another job? Mm. That's a good question. But uh, would it be possible if... Uh, are, are we talking in the sense that the firm will cut your pay or... Well, oh, no, your pay, your pay is the same because you're paying for the same hours essentially right, before right. they work week. Right. Okay. Um, that's fine. I think that's interesting because I actually I was speaking to someone uh, who's also doing a master's. Um, again, she had an interesting uh, career, right? She did her undergrad in finance or whatever, did five years in investment banking, mm. um, and then went and did this master's because she completely wanted to change her life. Right. And that corporate lifestyle and that medical profession life is, is kind of different. Mm. And um, I found that very interesting. Her work life was 8 a.m. to 3 a.m., you know, most of the time, and her weekends were sort of sleeping. That was a schedule for roughly five years. And although, you know, the money was very good, for example, on hourly rate, it was less than minimum wage, for example. Mm-hmm. And the lifestyle was completely unsustainable. Most people do two, three years of investment banking. That corporate lifestyle, either progress higher or kind of just leave that lifestyle completely. And so I think that four-day work week might be a really good thing for such companies, uh, you know, in the corporate, sec- in the corporate sector, um, who are for example, burn themselves out for four days and then have, you know, three days to kind of rest, maybe recover. Yeah. That might not be sustainable, might not be, uh, you know, might yeah, be sustainable. I, I, I agree. It depends sector to sector. Yeah. And... Um, you know, you do need to give a, a control to the firms or companies to implement it themselves. And if they think uh, that it's feasible to do, you know, there are, of course, U.S. law firms uh, who are implementing the system, but mm. it's not around. It's not with the U.K. or international f- firms at the moment. Mm. You know, there's the trials happening and we need to continue uh, to see what the benefits are. So I guess um, uh, it's a trend that it's uh, affecting uh, U.K. Firm- U.S. firms, US but firms, do you think yeah. that will affect the U.K. firms as well? Uh, well, the U- U.S. firms are, you know, like the top heavy brass metal firms, the mm. big big guns. Mm. So if it en- ends up working there, then I personally don't see that it, w- it that it would come down to the U.K. firms and then the smaller size mids. You and don't see it coming. Uh, I do. Sorry, I do. I do. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, if it's working for them, they're yeah. making millions of dollars. Why not them? But again, the other problem is that when you go down all the way down to that local and. Uh, uh, local and medium-sized firm or national firms, you know, they're not making the same amount of money as the top yeah. guys' firm, right? So yeah. maybe it won't work for them. They're already working extra hours as it is over time on maybe Saturdays and Sundays. So mm. is it worth worth it for them? I've heard a lot about this UK versus US co- uh, corporate culture, a lot mm. from my uh, brother mostly. Yeah. But um, 
because I always said, you know, go for the American firm, which have more bigger, yeah. better money, this, that, whatever. Right. He's like, you know what? No, I don't like the working culture, etc. Yeah, yeah. But you can probably tell me more about this. But is, I mean, the why is the working culture so different? And which one is better, do you think? And which one is working better? Because it seems like for them, the US firms are, are, like I said, have more influence, are doing better than the UK firms. It, well, it depends who, what, what your sort of lifestyle is, right? Because. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. firms, uh, it's. I mean, uh, the, the 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 magic. So we have Magic Circle firm in 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 law, right? The top law firms in the UK. Right in the UK, and mm-hmm. then we also have the U.S., which is equivalent of that, basically, but better. And the reason they're better is, of course, of the pay and the uh, benefits that you get. So it does depend on the person. Do you want to grind hard? Be uh, doing mental hours, but getting you paid extra getting hard your money. Mansion, getting your sports exactly, yeah. uh, or do you you know are you content with um, you know getting a decent amount of salary, decent amount of benefits, and having decent amount uh, lifestyle? So it, it, it's it's a you know you, you have to you have to weigh this up yourself to be honest. When you're in that situation, I personally I don't want to give up what I have right now. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm earning a f- uh, f- fair amount. Um, my work is literally I live in Battersea. Mm. My work's in Fulham, so it's literally a walk or like a, a cycle there, anyways. And uh, for me, I work two or three days a week from home, or the office is up to me, and that is perfect for me, and I'm happy with that. And if if someone would say, "Oh, look, I'm going to offer you, let's say, hundred thousand uh, pounds, but you got, you know, you got to work fifty, sixty, that mm. I can't do that. I'd, I, I, I'd probably die within like the th- first first month, man. It's just too much. So I, I think this whole thing speaks to what you see your work as. Yes. Is it your identity, and mm. you just want to put your hundred and ten percent into? it because it's a means to an end and you want you know the wealth and you want the whatever else or do you think actually work is just a part of me to sustain and get the life that I want and I'm good with the quality that I have yeah so a four-day work week can work you know within the hours and pay that I get Mm. this is is really interesting this is genuinely conversation I've had with my brother Mm. multiple times multiple times I can imagine as as you can as you know my brother so your brother is a law student law student <laughs> but yeah, because he's I've, bigger than me, no, 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 I've, <laughs> I've always he's a second year law student at Durham, mm-hmm. and so I think he's listening in as well. Um, he's definitely listening, he's definitely listening in. He should have called in, but um, <laughs> but my, my always my personal opinion has always been that your work should be something that you're interested in personally. You're yeah, you have to, yourself. Yeah. You have to be. Because your work and your life, you know, if your work is not interesting, for example, then your life is going to be miserable. Whereas, for example, my brother has the opinion, uh, you know, I might be misinterpreting it, but my interpretation of, of what he thinks is that work is a means to fund your actual life. And so it's kind of uh, the economic factor and the kind of way to develop and upgrade in life. Um, it does not necessarily have to be in the main cause for your for your for life's work, for example, which is interesting because having read Amartya Sen and Hajun Chang's theories on development, for example, um, Amartya Sen won the Nobel Prize for his economic theory that economic theory should be based on personal freedom and the way we, how we say a country is developing or country is not develop, is developed, for example, should be based on the level of personal freedoms, political freedoms, social freedoms they have in that country. Whereas a more recent economic theory, which uh, by Hajun Chang, for example, says that actually development is all based on economics. It's purely dependent on how rich a country is, essentially, mm. or how much you know how how good the economy is, for example. Mm. And so those two kind of differing, conflicting theories of economy. Hajun Chang was speaking was gave a talk at LSE yesterday, actually, uh, about his theories, which I didn't attend, unfortunately. Um, but <laughs> thought you were front seat, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was a, a bit busy there. Um, but again, it's interesting because I may be extrapolating too much here. But for me, that kind of 
illustrates the two different viewpoints mm. of development, for example, and then the end goal of, of as humans, you know, is what are, what is the end goal we're reaching for? Is it a purely economic or is it something deeper than that? I, I've had so many conversations with myself with this. I'm a 24-year-old boarding man oh, and wow. I decided to go back into graduate medicine mm. because of that primary reason, right? As a son of an immigrant, you have this pull of actually getting the money, getting the... Sounding s- like a uh, politician, a uh, uh, son of a... Oh gosh, we'll talk about that, <laughs> that play as well. But no, but if coming from an immigrant background, you have this pull of trying to find sustainability, get a house, get a wife, get a car, just so that you're stable. Mm. And then you can climb up and build the life that you want but reach for that stability whereas I I was always taught and from my life experiences that actually yearn for your passions and everything else will follow through I agree with that but it's a very privileged position to have and not everyone can have that so mm. are you really going to tell an Uber driver um, who's just <laughs> getting by, actually, yeah. no, just quit your job. Yeah. You don't have any rent or you're living paycheck, paycheck. Just quit it and, you know, find your passion. Educate yourself a bit and you can hide, get the bigger buck. It's a bit difficult because people are stuck in the rat race, you know. Stuck in the rat race indeed, so. But And the whole point is, does the four-day work week help fulfill your passions on the side and you can find more meaningful jobs? Or are you stuck in that job that you're at and, I don't know, it becomes more beneficial because you have that you know three day weekend I'd be interested four to know he's <laughs> cutting it down even more. No, no, no. <laughs> you've just got a three day work week in your head yeah. I'd be really interested to know about the, the the Islamic aspect of this as well and actually I've, I've been trying to find a paper copy of the economic system of Islam and kind of really find out Islam's view on development and kind of all the different theories does Islam say go for the economic route find economic freedom as, as some might say um, you know free yourself from the matrix as some might say even mm. or is it saying that the purpose of your life, find the purpose of your life and, and work towards it and kind of contribute towards society positively? Because again, you can argue, like I said, I, I don't want to go back to, to my academia, but Hajin Chang's theory is that if you work enough and you have enough money, then you're contributing to society anyway, for example. You're uplifting people around you, the local economy. You're able to support your family, for example. Apart from the personal freedoms you enjoy, by the very fact that you're earning more money, even in an industry that might not be directly contributing to society, you're actually adding some sort of value in society regardless. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Obviously, there are certain, certain for example, aspects that might not be, for example, but the overall theory is that even if you're not directly working in an industry that affects society, you still technically are, if that makes sense. Well, you improve your generation, your future generation standing, right? You, you get the car that you want, you get the house that you want, you get the stability that you want, and you create a family where they, they are now born into that sort of privilege that you, ne- you never really had and but on the, con- the the converse side of it is you're following your passions you're doing the hours not getting the necessary pay that you need but mm. you're on this sort of moral high horse that i'm you know doing it for the greater cause and the, you know the bigger picture or whatever else whatever else it might be yeah um i think i think we should uh, conclude this one um but uh, if we do remember you can call in uh, it's 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice Islam. We can go back to our topic if you want to. I mean, it's taken a bit of our t- from our, our time, mm-hmm. but uh, we've got f- more topics to talk about. So we'll uh, conclude this for now and uh, take a short break and then come back and, uh, you know, we'll talk about the, uh, the youth convention that uh, all three of us went to and uh, have some reflections about that. So join us after a short break. There is no excellence the possibility of which is vouched for by reason, of which God Almighty is bereft like an unfortunate human being. The wisdom of no wise one can point to an excellence which is not to be found in God Almighty. 
the maximum of all excellences that a person can conceive of, is found in him. He is perfect from every point of view, in his being, his attributes, and his good qualities, and he is absolutely free from all defects. This is a truth which distinguishes a true religion from a false one. When a person experiences in the shape of beneficence those divine attributes which constitute his beauty, his faith is strengthened beyond measure, and he is drawn towards God as iron is drawn towards a magnet. His love for God increases manyfold, and his trust in God becomes very strong. Having experienced that all his good is in God, his hopes in God are strengthened. He continues to incline towards God naturally, without pretense and affectation, and finds himself dependent upon God's help every moment, and believes firmly, through the contemplation of divine attributes, that he will be successful, because he has experienced, in his own person, many instances of God's grace, favour and generosity. Therefore, his supplications proceed from the fountain of power and certainty, and his resolve becomes extremely firm and unshakable. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Your job myself, Umar Bhatti, and my two co-hosts, Hamad Khan and Malik Takrim. Um, remember, you, this is a live and interactive show, so you can call us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We do have a, a caller joining in. Uh, the caller we've been talking about is uh, Takrim's brother, actually. Uh, it's uh, Malik uh, Faraz. Uh, assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. Good to have you here. Um, so, uh, what what is it that you would like to say? I believe you uh, they were listening to our conversation early on uh, on uh, the four day week, uh, and the uh, uh, green was mentioning your name a lot. So, I'm assuming that's the topic that you want to um, give us your opinion. Of course, yes, and that, and also um, j- just recently, you were talking about why you know working is it, is it mainly for the money or is it for the love of the job itself? Yes. Yeah, go um, ahead. I think- um, I, I think firstly on, on the working day week point, I think um, the, the new, you know, you touched upon it, US firms have mandated four days in the office. I don't think it's such a bad thing. Specifically, I think when someone's training, I think the, I, I think it's quite indicative of uh, of nowadays generation that I think maybe it's the, the sort of the gloom post-COVID that people are, you know, they're, they're willing to stay at home and that's what they've got used to. But I do think definitely for most people, I think for most of the time, it's productive um, in the office. And I think clearly when you're training, I think to have that physical supervision of, of, of a senior, I think is, is something which can't be, can't be matched um, by a team, I think. But I think mainly I was calling to talk about the, the working mainly for the money and not for the love of the job itself. I think, I think my, my view on it is that, of course, I think you know, financial compensation is, stands tall as a, as a motivator behind your work, but... The thing is, money is not merely a means to an end. I think if we look at it from, you know, certainly for me, I look at it from an Islamic point of view, that the Prophet Muhammad also have encouraged us to earn halal money and halal risks. And that is something which has been earned through honest work. So clearly, I think that the point of work is not just to make the most money that you can in whatever way you can. 
but certainly there has to be some sort of satisfaction in it. Otherwise, no one could truly work just for the money. But of course, I think um, I, I look on it. You know, I look at the, the the dichotomy between working for love and working for money. And I don't think we need to be so rigid in our perceptions. I think we can sort of um, be a bit more flexible and think about it as yes, for, for some part of your career, you may well be working for money, and for the rest of it, you may well be be able to follow your passions. That's my view on it. I think that's a that's, that's a good way of putting it for us, um, because again, I think I think that flexibility is important. And like I said, I, I quite like your point about the fact that at certain points of your career, for example, you're expected mm. to and you should work hard, and and it might not be money for the training aspect of it as well. Once you have that experience, once you know, you know, you understand your field very well, you then have that experience and that and that skill to be able to highlight, be able to do less work almost, but work just as well. If that makes sense. So I guess that comes. Off later down the line, once exactly, you become a exactly. you know, senior and you've been through a lot of experience and have had a lot, of, unless you guys disagree. No, I, I'm then yeah. so I'm cutting you off there. No, no, no. I was, was going to say that, and I think with medicine, similar thing, you have a very hard training yeah. pathway, but once you reach a consultant level, you actually your, your time constraints drop quite a lot, and you can you are then free to pursue other passion. And then we see people mm. do humanitarian work abroad and health and healthcare and quality, etc. Which again, well, they might not be able to do if they didn't have that economic freedom from working so hard early on. So I think the, these two things are not, uh, you know, they're, they're not opposite ends of the spectrum. They're not, uh, you know, they're, they're not two different things that that like I said, it's not dichotomy. Um, there is more of a sliding scale of where you stand on that. I think. Mm, no. Okay. Yeah. That's. I think that 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 sounds great. And uh, to cut, to your point as well, Fraz, on the first point you made about four day weekend, I think I, I agree with you to start off with that physical um, interaction, especially for like a new employee or a young trainee who's coming into a, f- a law firm or whatever, whatever firm it is. It doesn't even have to be the law law sector itself. But uh, to be coming in and interacting with the team and learning off, I think you can learn off so much more uh, of other people than yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I found from this the current job that I'm doing, that because I'm in my, I have a small team, uh, I, I've been struggling to learn off from others um, and because we have a home working policy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've, I've had to learn everything myself rather than, you know, rely on other people. Mm-hmm. Be like, you know, hey, what, what can I do here? You know, because I, I don't have that inter- a lot of interaction like that. And, to add to that, there are firms, of course, uh, which I've heard, and I know my uh, my own firm certainly, uh, they are now looking at the home working po- policy because some people are abusing it by just working from home regularly as a uh, you know as as regular as possible because you know you're supposed to come into the office, and the argument is that you know the firm has bought an office or hired an office for you to come in and work but if you're not using it then it affects the whole firm as well in the, in, in the fact that they will have to lay off people or lay off the uh, office because um, you're, you're not you're not using so I agree with the, the fact that there needs to be uh, physical interac- interaction uh, you need to be in the office and you need to have uh, there needs to be some sort of set uh, guidelines only by the, uh, firm to firm, not uh, a guidance put uh, solely by go- uh, government policy. I think that's interesting. That draws in the, to the broader topic of the fact that your work is not just the work itself. It's all those factors surrounding your work as well. If you work in a corporate office, you're subconsciously developing those social skills, mm. those networking skills, those skills that you need to live in a society, um, even by you know networking with your peers and and you know learning from your mentors, learning how to be a good listener, um, be learning how to be a good speaker, a good teacher, yep. a good student. And all these you know, skills are not taught, for example, that you're, you're gained almost from that learning environment. And in certain sectors, for example, you might not have that. Um, and if you're working from home, for example, you might not have that. Um, and that could negatively impact your social skills as well. Mm. So like I said, I think there's much more to this debate rather than this, oh, 
you know, it's it's not like I said, it's not a dichotomy of on the days that you're working, you're working, on the days you're not working, you're not working, and there's no overlap in between. Yeah. So, uh, Fraz, I'm gonna come to you one more time to close it off. If you've got anything else to say. Yeah, I was just going to finish off with, I think, you know, as, as an adherent to the to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and its teachings, I think I, I always remember that, um, you know, the teachings, you know, they, they guide us to navigate our professional and personal lives with a with an underlying spirit of service and benevolence. I think that's really important. And I think the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community continually reminds us of the Islamic principles of equity and fairness, both in trade and in employment. So I think it's this ethical compass which, which should um, guide our, our professional pursuits even if they are driven by financial necessity or passion mm. or both. Um, I, I think it's really important that we keep that in mind. I think that uh, has hit a nail on my head because I remember at the start of the pandemic, or at least the start of lockdown, uh, prices went up so high, right? Mm. Uh, what did the uh, what did the, His Holiness say to Ahmadi Muslim uh, owners, shopkeepers or whatever business I don't hike your prices unnecessarily that high because it will affect other people and um, it's not uh, Islamic uh, it's, it's un-Islamic to, uh, to, to push it that high and to you know it needs to be a reasonable standard so that's, some, that's something that came straight out of my, my mind as well and I think you, you mentioned uh, that hits the nail on the head I guess for us and um, yeah thank you very much for contributing to the show uh, hopefully you have a good day and uh, we wish to speak to you hopefully in the future again Assalamu alaikum no, no problem Sorry, that was uh, Fraz Malik from Bradford. Um, yeah, I guess uh, that was an interesting. You know, uh, we spoke a bit uh, more than than we expected. Uh, but let's just uh, turn to our new topic. I guess we've got ten minutes to talk about it, and it's the youth convention that we th- us three attended. Uh, well. I just I found out that say, you didn't attend, but... I, I was unable to attend this year, but I can give the external view yes, on how it looks like. Um, no, it, it, it's always the FOMO and the missing out because every, you, it's that you know yearly dose of your brotherhood just concentrated across those three days. Um, and you do feel it as someone who was on the other side, unfortunately, and wasn't able to attend. Um, you you recognise its be- be- benefits and values and just reaffirming you know the relationships that you had in your community. Um, and I was just thinking about this other day as well it's so vital for you know just your spiritual identity recognizing that you've got your peers who are you know carrying on with their lives and professions and doing you know practicing islam in the way that is to them the most appropriate and there's no issues with that and you don't have when you don't have that you sort of feel lost in your way and i've met so many people just recently in the past week or so who are you know high flying in their careers and whatever else and i see the consequences Mm -hmm. of them not having that you know like they they have this sort of like pseudo new age spiritual aspects in their life which is quite alarming or whatever else you know they've got crystals around or whatever they, they put deep faith and sincerity into it but it's I, I recognize the benefit of actually having a community that puts emphasis on meeting each other reaffirming relationships with each other sharing an identity with one another and just chilling out it's, yeah, it, it, is. You know, it's it pretty much is uh, because remember it's not just we don't just have this one event uh, a national event for all youth uh, once a year we actually have things that lead up to it we have the local youth yeah. event then we have the regional and then it leads up to the national yeah. and even between those local regional uh, events we have smaller smaller events taking place making sure that our youth members are uh, interacting with at least their local or regional members and you know you become uh, you, you know who your brothers are and then at the national event you just there rep- either you know if you're taking part in sports you're representing your region as it is or academically as well, you're presenting a region or individually. And um, it's a time to sort of, uh, you know, 
mingle with other people you know mm. sometimes you just meet people I just met someone at security who I met there for the first time at Ishtamaya I just met him again here he was do, he, this time he was the parent there but this time he, he's the one doing the duty so I, I met him here so it's always nice and refreshing to see the same people uh, after some time well it's not even a some time but it's a week after but still I, I didn't expect him to be here yeah and that culmination is, 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 is a great point because um, I was in the exhibition uh, Mark you yeah and you you, 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 had, you had a talk as well didn't you we had a talk well, I'll get on to that mm. after after this as well but in the exhibition you know there's not just a social focus there's an academic focus on that as well beyond the academic competition and spiritual competitions that you know we're having the exhibition really showcases kind of the academic uh, ability and the academic mentoring support and all the kind of the the worldly you could say or, or academic is probably a better word educational support that the community offers and so we had you know a regular exhibition about prayer focusing not just on the spiritual aspects of it the physical well-being the mental well-being um, we had the AMSA the Ahmadiyya Muslim Student Association exhibitions we had the engineering side the medical side we also had the, the, the panel discussion the talk as well and all these kind of things like I said these there's not something that happened just for the event and finished afterwards. In fact, they were a launch pad, for example, for some of our mentoring schemes, mm. make me medic, make me lawyer, make me an engineer, make me researcher. Um, and so kind of it kind of reflected the achievements of what we've done already and allowed people to you know, launch off into bigger things as well. So I think it's it's I find it interesting to see that Istama or the, the convention is not just an event, but as kind of a, a culmination uh, and also a starting point um, of a lot of things that happen in the community. And also, just not to be poignant, but the bar- barbecues is always mm. great every year. <laughs> this year, this was more, it was more of a, like a master chef. So really? it, it wasn't yes. for everyone yes. to eat. It was oh. more for regions to compete against each other yeah. in healthy competition, right? Yes. Because that's what Islam encourages uh, yeah. to uh, vie, vie with one another in good works. And it was a sort of competition. I mean, I wasn't able to see it because I was part of the organization side for the kids, mm. the, uh, the 7 15 year olds. So I was there. But um, did you have a chance to look at the barbecue competition? I heard it was pretty, this, really, very good. Uh, the pictures online looked yeah. incredible, like what, it was stellar. One of my biggest regrets this year is that I usually I stay over. Um, usually I stay over at the um, the the, Istimar, the, the Istimar site on the Saturday night, um, but because you know, just just kind of uh, the fact that I had a, a flat nearby for the first time in a while meant I could go back home. Now, forty-five minute, two-hour commute meant that I went back early. But my brother actually who was at the uh, uh, the barbecue. He sent me quite some videos. And again, that that brotherhood and the atmosphere really, really again kind of shone through, even though in those videos. I remember the barbecue back in the day, a good five, six years ago, when I was a when I was a, a tiffle, a kid then. Yeah. Um, I remember the kind of the atmosphere that was generated on those nights. It wasn't just about the barbecue; it was about the fact that it's late night. As a kid, you're allowed to, you know, you're awake at midnight, unheard of yeah. in those times, <laughs> and you kind of seeing everyone mingling, everyone having informal chats. You know, people are much more relaxed, comfortable. You're talking to people many, many years. You're seeing it. You're asking them questions that you can never think of. Um, they're sharing the knowledge that you never knew you needed, um, but would be so helpful in the years to come. A lot of my mentoring and all of my motivation, and for a lot of people as well these are the influences and experiences that shape their lives it's that one conversation you have with a doctor with an engineer with a lawyer who tells you about their job or how much they love their job or hate their job maybe um, that kind of can inform your career and your life in so many different ways and you know people say I have a, I've had this enthusiasm for medicine or law for a long time or always been enthusiastic about teaching for example but if you trace it down it comes down to two three key moments in one's life and so really 
the the benefits of this Istimaz convention is not just limited to those three days. Like I said, it can have lifelong ripples and lifelong effects. Um, and that's, I think, the beauty of, you know, such events as the barbecue, which seem insignificant, but really, you know, as I, as I demonstrated, have such, can have such significant impacts on, on one's life. Mm. And the Queen, you mentioned that you actually gave that t- t- talk later on. Why do you think it's important to actually have these side talks and talk to the youth? And, you know, I, th- I think you talked about, w- was it particularly um, about being Muslim in universities and the challenges that uh, the students face when they, you know, are in a new environment? Why, why, why do, you know, as a religious organisation that tries to cater for its youth, why, why is that relevant? Why is that important? That's a very interesting question. And the very, very simple thing is that maybe perhaps I'm a simple person myself, but I like to translate things you know, into a format on Sun for everyone. And AMSA, the Amni Muslim Student Association, of which I'm part of the national team, what we do is that we provide that mentoring support and uh, that, that structure, backbone for students in university, the students in universities across the UK. Now, that doesn't mean we're a police force. It doesn't mean that we're kind of overseeing body. We don't tell people what to do. It means we're there as a support structure, that support network, which we so often talk about in social prescribing and the mental health setting um, and social well-being setting. That is what we aim to support for how many students uh, in in the UK. And so that talk, for example, was A, to highlight the support that's on offer, a, B to kind of change the perception around AMSA, show that AMSA is this kind of you know this kind of society or support network that you can join. It's not mm. an overseeing body. It's not like other conventional auxiliary organisations in in the in the uh, the uh, the youth uh, organisation. And third, the most important thing is to translate those abstract concepts of at university we should stick to our faith or we should be strong in our mm. faith. Translate those abstract concepts into practical realities. What does sticking to your faith mean? Mm. Does it mean going to that flat party that you've been invited? to in your flat by your flatmates does it mean you're having a freshers fair event at a site you want to join um, but they're having it at a pub do you go or not go answering those practical questions making it easy for people to understand not necessarily labelling it and, and telling them what to do but sharing your own experiences of this is how we did it perhaps you could take something away from that okay just before we go on a break um, because His Holiness also attended and did, uh, concluded the session with a speech there was one um, quote which stood out and maybe actually helps us in that conversation we before about a four-day working week or about money and he says the biggest obstacle blocking the path to victory of any nation or community is if its members gain a lust for money and wealth such material cravings can easily corrupt people and weaken their resolve to offer sacrifices for their faith and to fulfill their religious objectives so all of you living here in western countries should never be consumed by a desire to earn money or become affluent instead Always place your trust in Allah that he will provide for you, inshallah, God willing. He will support you and fulfill your needs in ways beyond your comprehension. And he will remove all your difficulties if you are sincere with him. So do not enter the race to earn money or unnecessary luxuries. Instead, your race should be the one that leads to God Almighty. So that previous conversation we had might just have summarized for us what we were actually looking for in the answer and it was actually the answer last week um but before uh, i ask you for your input we will have to go to a short break the news break so join us after a short break where we'll, we'll continue the conversation of this and conclude with it and then move on to the tory party conference mm-hmm. three days that ahmadi muslims celebrate and are they contrary to the teachings of islam Now, these three days, at first face value, seem to be more pertinent to the calendar of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. 
But in reality, when we look a little bit deeper and understand the wider connotation, we understand that they are important, not just to the Ahmadi Muslims, but indeed to Muslims across the world and indeed theists throughout the globe. These three days, namely celebrating the day of the promised Messiah, celebrating the day of the promised son, and celebrating the institution of Khilafat or Caliphate, are such that are incredibly important in our day-to-day religion. But they're important also because of the fact that they refer to prophecies made by the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. It was he that said that these events would occur. The promised Messiah, for example, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, said that in the latter days, an eschatological figure or a figure in the latter days would emerge to rejoin man with man, but also man with God. And therefore, we celebrate the fact that this grand prophecy made almost a millennia and a half ago has come true. The allegation that uh, is the celebration of these days something which we should be um, abstaining from? Of course not. Something as joyous and something as jubilant as the fulfillment of a grand prophecy of our Grand Master, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, proving not only the truth of the promised Messiah, but proving the truth of the Holy Prophet and indeed proving the existence of God. Is that not something to be happy and jubilant about? Then we have the concept of the Caliphate, the establishment of Khilafat. Again, this is something which is mentioned by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. Prophesied that Khilafat Allah min Haji Nabuwa, Caliphate upon the precepts of prophethood, would come to existence. Again, something which is also mentioned in the Holy Quran itself. So when we see after so many years something so blessed coming into being that gives meaning to our very life, is this not something to be happy and to celebrate? Then the third day is the day of the promised son. Again, we understand that when God sends his prophets to earth, he does not send them empty handed. Rather, he sends them furnished and armed with beautiful signs of truth to prove the claims that they make. This, this concept and this prophecy of the uh, promised son, who indeed was Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, who later on became the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, this was a grand prophecy which showed that God indeed was on the side of the promised Messiah, thereby proving not only his claim, but also the claim that this Messiah would indeed come furnished with signs, as was said and foretold by, you guessed it, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. Therefore, these three days, of course they're in accordance with the teachings of Islam. Indeed, they are prophesied by no less than the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. A man makes a prophecy 1400 years ago, they come true. Are we not going to be celebrating and be joyous at that? On a side note, the concept of celebration Indeed, many people will raise this allegation because of the fact that they allege that this is a, an innovation to celebrate these days. But as we've mentioned, it is in complete accordance with the teachings of the Holy Quran and the prophecies of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him. And we're not talking about celebration like we're setting off cartwheels and fireworks and dancing. This is a celebration of the signs of God, where we bring people together to remember God, to talk about the signs and the glory of God. And this is actually told as an injunction in the Holy Quran. It says in chapter 14, verse 6, that remind them 
of the days and the signs of God. Therefore, this is not contrary, rather it is completely in accordance with the teachings of Islam and something which absolutely everyone should be involved in because of the fact that what else is there to be joyous about for a theist, God-believing community than to celebrate the glorious and wonderful proofs and signs of God. A new station, The Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with The Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Your job myself, Omar Bhakti, and my two co-hosts, Hamad Khan and Malik Takrim. Uh, we've just been talking about the convention and we finished off with a quote from his home lesson. I'm just going to repeat it again just to remind our listeners. Um, it is, uh, and his holiness uh, says, uh, said, the biggest obstacle blocking the path to victory of any nation or community is if its members gain a lust for money and wealth. Such material cravings can easily corrupt people and weaken their resolve to offer sacrifices for their faith and fulfill their religion, religious objectives. So all of you living here in the West, Western countries should never be consumed by a desire to earn money or become affluent. Instead, always place your trust in Allah that he will provide for you, inshallah, God willing. He will support you and fulfill your needs in ways beyond your comprehension and he will remove all your difficulties if you are sincere with him so do not enter the race to earn money or unnecessary luxuries instead your race should be the one that leads to god almighty <clears throat> and that was a quote his holiness uh, said at the um, youth convention um, at the concluding session and um, it does it is it is always a timely reminder and he always reminds us of what our end goal is, I guess, and it's to become closer to God Almighty, um, be good human beings, um, and uh, be positive members of society. And in this conversation, I guess, we have spoken about um, whether, uh, well, two different theories, I guess, whether we should be uh, working hard or working hard or you know working hard for the money and um, in this quote it's been beautifully summed up uh, to you know to work towards have no no fear that God will be there to help you and as Ahmadi Muslims we shouldn't we shouldn't be going for I guess worldly pleasures because there is an afterlife that we believe in and that's where we hopefully will Feel the pure beauty. I, I think you know j j just on that and how timely it is. Us, to, us, us three here. We're discussing you know our anxieties, our you know desires about life, and then there we have His Holiness has already given the advice, and that shows that. I, I mean, in what other setting do you have a world leader being able to cater to the general anxieties of every specific age group that you know how, how amazing is that and you know to have that reminder to say that Allah Ta'ala that God we believe is Al-Razaq Al-Wahhab the prov best provider and all, all, always giving it's just um, it's always necessary but it's, it's just really heartfelt and touching to know that you have that personal connection with um, the Khalifa the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who's, who says that he's always thinking about us and that in itself just proves it as well I, it always amazes me how the 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 khalif the the, the khalifa the his holiness he's made us in his hand it's it's just amazing how the the his speeches his his advice is so tailored and so so current and so you know 
focused on what's happening in the world at the moment. You know, when it was COVID, it was all about health and physical health and spiritual health as well. And now, you know, in terms of Andrew Tate, which is, you know, breaking the matrix, cost of living crisis and all this economic uncertainty, His Holiness has given us such beautiful economic advice. And, you know, when people say that, you know, religion is outdated, religion, the matrix of, of religious rules no longer applies or, you know, you know, religion cannot be put on this modern world. We've advanced further than religion, uh, you know, God forbid. His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community uh, in Islam is a living example of how we can take the religious principles and use them to form the basis of a modern life, you know, of a sustainable modern life and a, the perfect or as close to perfect as possible uh, human life. And all because that teaching that we are, uh, you know, that we are basing our, uh, you know, our lives on those principles are not human-made principles. They're not theories like Amartya Sen or Hajun Chang or all these Nobel Prize winners they made. These are principles that have come from God Almighty, the Creator Himself, and so they have to be perfect, you know, because they've come from the, or, the original source. It's like you know, if you if you build a car and it's, the car's not working, for example, I could take it to my brother, I could take it to my dad, for example, they can try fix it, like a robot car I made, for example. But if I take it to the guy who made the car, for example, he'll be able to give me the perfect answer of what's wrong with it and how to fix it. And so this is why you know, I, you know, why are we not turning towards the Creator, and why are we not? looking at the, the guidebook the outline that he's given us to, to, to live our life which is in the Holy Quran and the, the Sunnah and mm -hmm. the teachings of, of Islam and that's why we are weak humans and we need constant reminders to put us to the right plan and it always is a reflection like you, you think about when you're back home um, you know or you think about past uh, your childhood maybe where your mum's mum or parents would be like you know go go do this go do that and I guess now you understand why you need those constant reminders from now his holiness as well and you understand the broader picture of why you in the future if you know will become parents or have responsibility in the future as well that we will have to remind and be the same things not because you know we are now we've become those 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 people because I guess we are also uh, people of the book and we are also uh, is it viceroys viceroys of the earth so we also our duty is also to just to remind people that uh, you know bring them closer to God and do good works and um, and um, that, that that is how we, we we're trying to um, emulate or at least try to fulfill our duties this role. That's an interesting point as well about you know Allah having appointed vast regions in the earth and us being representative of, of God or God on the earth. Mm. It means that these this advice is not just for ourselves. Of course, it is for our personal development, but we should also be leaders in society and yeah. guide other people towards the truth as well. That's why Islam is not. You know, unlike Judaism and other religions, for example, that might be, that might not be, uh, you know, propagating religions or, or, or uh, you know, religions that have missionaries, for example. Mm. Um, Islam is a is a religion that encourages people to go out and promote the message and spread the message of Islam, in order to have salvation for everyone, um, because that is the you know the most just thing to do. And I think again, it's so important the idea of being leaders in our community, leaders in our leaders in our household, leaders in the community, because it's only by being leaders and having you know that strong personality that we can guide other people towards the truth as well. This, I, why should we gatekeep? Why should we restrict these ideas to just ourselves? Um, and why not tell people? It's a very uh, 
you know, it's it's a it's a common argument that I use that you know if you've discovered you know the secret to having all the riches in the world or all the gold in the world, why would you not share that with your fellow person? You know, mm-hmm. if you found a stream of of cool raw water, clean water running through it, why would you not invite your neighbour to join from it as well? And so that's why the importance of of the believe or outreach activities, I believe, is so important. And for example, that's something that AMSA, for example, is focusing on, especially this year, having outreach events and uh, you know spreading the message of Islam Ahmadiyya and guiding people towards the truth. That is uh, beautifully put. Um, we'll move on to the um, conference that took place, uh, and it was the Tory Tory conference, the uh, Conservative Party, the government's conference, I guess you can put it. And it was the first time Rishi Sunak, as a leader, um, was presented as a, as a leader uh, beforehand. I believe he, of course, lost uh, uh, to Liz Truss before in, in that when he was trying to convince people and then internally they elected um, Rishi Sunak as the new Prime Minister and this was the first time he was his speech to his members <coughs> members uh, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about that because over just over probably around 16 months left or at, at least um, or maximum you can say because it has to take place uh, by next year uh, December uh, because um, that is the cut off point but uh, talks are taking place whether there will be an early election or a snap election which in my opinion will be unlikely because you know if you're an, uh, not a party that is going to win power next time or you're not confident that you will then you'll, you'll drag it out all the way to the mm. end and see it but uh, it can happen you never know we've been such turbulent times uh, in the UK p- politics that nothing's out of the equation in that sense so we'll go through it and I think Hamad you want to lead on this uh, on this section just before that let's let's just start off with this let's get the feeling in the room here us three guys here mm. what do you feel about voting do you feel like it's valuable appropriate do you feel excited about voting wow um, I can't even vote because I'm a EU national so oh interesting oh. That. I would Very be able interesting. to vote but if I did have to uh, I think of course I'd go for Labour and I have voted other parties at that in the to party. be fair I didn't ask for political views but that's but, it, that's where that's uh, actually yeah. uh, giving out my personal political yeah. view, uh, for if I were to vote in the next general election I would vote for and it. that would be a meaningful vote to you you'd be like it's time for change I believe yes. in them and we're, we're it ready and it's a, long time a source ago. of excitement yes it is exciting because it's hope that we possibly see a new government and are finally done with a bit of a uh, comedy and clownery <laughs> interesting comedy clownery conservatives yeah. three C's oh, there wow. we are um, the cream what are your thoughts <laughs> got a linguist in the room um, it's interesting you asked me because I never actually had a deep interest in politics well now you got to vote and uh, <laughs> until I uh, could vote and even then I still don't, didn't, have, didn't have a political interest and even now I think I'm not as interested <coughs> in politics as perhaps I should be I keep and I actually I was going to you've kind of jump started me a little bit I was going to I was going to try and frame this discussion from the point of view of what does the Tory conference mean for me because I don't actually mm. understand a lot of it but in terms of politics for example I don't I have a very much a, a layman layman kind of view of it um, and I again I'm not even sure which party I would vote for I didn't exercise my right to vote uh, in, the, in the last gen- 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 elections and you know I don't think I've ever I think I've voted maybe once since I've been eligible mm. um, and I know I perhaps should vote but I just don't know who to vote for 
what's the point of voting even? Mm. Um, and I don't know if this is reflective of, of my demographic <coughs> in general, but I feel like a lot of my friends, for example, have a similar viewpoint of that. There's no point in voting. Mm. Nothing's going to change anyway. It's all going horribly. So that, so that's why I asked, because I, I share a very similar view. We're, we're, we're similar in age. And I, I, I feel disillusioned. Um, the two parties that we're talking about, the two political leaders that we're talking about, I don't think bring much change at all. One will be a change in colour. It'll be, a, you know, that, and that'll be the whole ceremony and you know the banfare about you know having a, d- a different party a different leader but when you look at the actual policies i don't think much will change at all especially when we have wider society mm-hmm. feeling like they're on their knees than ever before in terms of their health their well-being in terms of their um, economic standing we all agree that huge changes need to occur yeah. we've completely plummeled pummeled rather british society in the past the 13 years right and something needs to change the question is was this conservative party conference the answer to that change mm. because the mission that Rishi Sunak had to portray was that this is the last chance saloon he knew that he didn't have the political points at hand so he had to present himself as a necessary candidate for that change and that's exactly what he did he let's just do a bit bit of a whistle stop mm. tour on some of the big highlights some striking highlights that he did and he committed to the first one is the HS2 cancellation, yep, which one. was quite extraordinary because there you are in a Manchester conference talking about how a billion pound uh, investment uh, in, in this country is now not going to reach even the, 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 the area of the, the com- that the conference was in. And so it's a huge d- a disinvestment into the crowd of the room. Mm. And so it was quite extraordinary. And the fact that he was able to then say that actually every penny, so every penny of those 32 billion pounds is going to be invested locally so that they have, I can't remember what the term was. Um, the Northern Hubs? Northern North Network, Northern Network, yeah. something yeah, something, something like that, yeah. um, is is quite extraordinary as well. But he took it full on, and he said that they are axing the northern leg of the HS2. Just before we move on to your second part, we have a northerner here. Uh, are you aware of much about HS2, or do you care enough to? The only that point, will swindle your vote. Well, you know what? We'll swindle I am your from vote. the north, right? <laughs> but I'm from Bradford. Um, <laughs> might not sound like it, but I am. And correct me if I'm wrong, but. The original HS2 plans did not include Bradford in their in their original plans, in, for as far as I know. But the new Northern Network does. Oh. So actually, they're saying that Bradford is pretty much one of the only benefactors of this new decision, as in because we're apparently getting new tra- rails in the interchange as well, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's amazing news for me because it takes three hours and twelve minutes, which I'm, the, the journey I'm doing today mm-hmm. to go back from London to Bradford, which is quite direct actually and actually there are quite a few cheaper services that run on it I think if you book early enough it's about 12-14 pounds one way which is actually very good I think um, for the current the, the current state um, and that's been keeping me going during my university days um, but I think so I think actually Bradford is, is one of the, the winners from, from what I have heard I don't want to mm. again I'm not, not too sure on that but I think um, I think that's correct so actually I'm not, I'm not too fussed about it but I do see uh, you know the HS2 from uh, as a northerner general. As a general, yeah, as a general, the talk of HS2 has been going on for a long time. Um, you know, I think it's been a number of years, and people were quite excited at the beginning at this prospect of high speed because even the northern network, I don't think it's a high speed system. So no, we we don't actually have a high speed rail system or like a no. bullet train. Mm, like, not at all. Not one. Not yeah, not one. So this would have been our first, but even then, 
with his collab. And I think the optics of this was just quite extraordinary. So a the irony that he's in the, the mm. conferences in Manchester mm. and he's you know talking about a sense of disinvestment in the local community, but also the fact that like like we said. There is no high-speed network within um, the UK. Other European countries have them. HS2, 32 billion pounds down the drain. Quite extraordinary. (coughs) Sorry about that. Right, moving on. He then talked about change. And it's quite extraordinary. Language in politics is really extraordinary. He said, our mission is to fundamentally change our country. If the country is to change, then it can only be us who deliver it. Change indoors if people are willing to bring it. And he thinks of himself as a change candidate. And of course, this is under the context that actually for the last 13 years, it's the Conservative Party that have ruled. So if we're talking about change, why didn't it come under their rule? Mm. And I, I don't know whether you guys have any thoughts on that or um, you know, what, what, how you think that you know, they deliver on these promises and they think that they want to be changed at all. I think it, it comes across as almost a very personal, almost presidential campaign almost in the run-up to the election. Um, it seems like he's campaigning on personal grounds almost rather than party grounds, which I think it's a, it's a clever move because how many, how many Conservative Prime Ministers have we had in the last, how many leaders of the party have we had in the last five years, for example? Um, too many. Too many, some might say. Um, some, like my, some, some might disagree. Um, <laughs> but... I think it's it's a it's a bold move from him. It's a good you know it could be a good political move from him um, to position himself as the figurehead of this change, like they were mentioning, rather than the party itself. Because like I said, people may not associate the party with change because mm. it hasn't been wrought about it. Yeah, I mean, look, Rishi Sunak is a popular candidate, right, within the Conservative uh, Party, and outside of it, yeah, he's not as popular as compared to Keir Starmer, but he's still seen as a safe pair of hands. Uh, when it comes to economic decisions because rightly so he introduced the um uh the what, what was the thing called during pandemic it, uh, no, it no, the, the one before, uh, where he, furlough? the furlough scheme which uh, you know uh, majority of people saved uh, were, were saved uh, from lo- losing money uh, albeit that you know now we're paying the consequences but still he is he is still a popular figure and he's seen as a drive head for that during the, um, during um, the lockdown you say that you just reminded me at that time I was doing my global health masters and one of the sort of luminary lights in the global health field Sir Michael Marmot he gave us a direct lecture and he said at the time we should tune out with the Chancellor of the Exchequer mm. he said he has the right, the power and the will to change the lives of over 4 million children in this country by allowing for the uh, unemployment benefit, what is it called again, I'm, f- I'm forgetting, the universal credit universal. Um, to, to, to keep it the same and to not, not, not cut it unnecessarily. Mm. He didn't do that. There was a political decision. So it, it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, again, you have the power, you had the power for the past 13 years, not much change has happened. And you mentioned about, you know, him being seen as a political asset and being seen quite popular. And the other thing that was quite interesting that happened, and I think it's just interesting, the political play of it all, was Sunak's wife then came down to talk. And apparently this happened behind the scenes without him knowing. And she was there to talk about how Rishi Sunak loves rom-coms. He's a great father and a great husband to um, herself as well. And it's quite extraordinary because she herself was a political figure in the sense that in the tabloids, she was known for not paying the taxes. She, she, uh, she, she's um, from an extremely wealthy family and both her and then Rishi Sunak become an oligarch figure who throughout British history, there's not been a richer prime minister mm. at all. Um, so again, it's interesting to beg the question, how can this person viscerally understand the issues that nearly everyone in this country is going through when his own almost immoral wealth 
I'd argue it's a moral wealth when it gets to that stage, um, positions them so far away from the realities that an average Briton is facing. I think, you know, I think that's a very interesting point. I think personal experiences, you know, definitely shape political opinions and, and you know, uh, of anyone and especially of a person whose political opinions are then going to influence the, the outlook and the outcome of an entire nation. So that's a very valid point. But again, I think that that brings on to my point, back to my point again, that this again seems like a very personal campaign, a very presidential campaign in that sense. That you know, for example, his wife is involved now, and she's extolling not just his political virtues but also his uh, personal virtues as well. Um, and so this is you know this is a, a through ball, a kind of a setup towards the uh, the election campaign that that's obviously going to happen later on, uh, you know, very soon. Um, so it's interesting to see from someone who's actually quite new to politics how this is all working, how that very that you know that. The theological argument of democracy and power to, of the people and power for the benefit of the people, for the best of people, uh, is kind of now. It's there's so many layers and filters and kind of uh, you know things that misconstrue um, that original aim that is to benefit as many people as possible and help as much people as possible. Um, and so you know, I'm really looking forward to you know looking more into politics in detail, for example. And going to the academic side of it as well, and seeing how we've gone from those principles of of power to the people to what we have now is one person saying I am better to run this country than someone else. And remember that he was actually democratically unelect; he didn't have a mandate at all for his leadership. So this will be the first time he'll be put to test when the next election and, comes. And it's interesting. So moving swiftly on, so. Again, in the context of knowing that they actually don't have a lot of the political points that they need, that there's a sort of dissatisfaction, particularly with the Conservative rule, he then stuck to some incredible announcements. The first was actually what some considered to be a cultural war point, which was that he said, and it was quite stark, and I, you know, I think I think there's opinions for, against, and just ambivalence and neutrality of it because what's the intention behind it? But he then talked about genderism essentially, and he talked about what what a man is and what a woman is and how it should be uncomplicated. And I think this was the first time that we saw a public political figure go into this debate and we say even debate, but could go address this conversation head on. But then the intentionality of it is he knew that this is a cultural war point. He knew that this is actually going to bring a lot of people back into the table and, um, you know, sort of get get the popularity does he need, that he needs. So what is the purpose of this? Is it, you know, just empty words? Is it just to try and entice and to just, you know... G- is, is it just all a game essentially at the end of the day but then I just when you think that this is all policy politics and play he then announced the concept of banning smoking so which is quite extraordinary and all the public health experts were really shocked by this but absolutely celebrating this announcement as it were so the Prime Minister's now sort of promised a plan to end smoking for the next generation so they're raising the age at which cigarettes can be purchased so for anyone who um, was born I think it's in 2009 or later, it's illegal, um, or 2009 before, it's illegal to actually um, sell cigarettes to them. And it's this sort of phasing out so that by 2040, 2050, you have a smoke-free generation, something that New Zealand has similarly done. Um, the Cream, you might have some thoughts on that. You know, I'm saying that all these new policies and these ideas, they seem to reflect a change in direction. It seems like they want, you know, the Tory party want us to think that there's a change in the direction of policies of the party because I remember criticism of for example during COVID and Boris Johnson's regime is that the government was slow to react to current affairs with the banning of XL bullies with the ban on vaping 
you know, vaping shops, the smoking, the, the gender uh, rights uh, debates, all these things, it seems like, you know, perhaps they are putting the finger on the pulse and addressing current issues straight away. Or it seems like they want to make out as if they are the, the party for change, as they say, and they are the party that have their finger on the pulse of, of, the, of the nation and are ready to react decisively because like I said I think that was one of the uh, the sticking points of the, of the previous governments that they weren't for example as decisive or swift in their decision making and arguably you know cost lives in the COVID-19 pandemic some might say so I, I think that's very interesting from again from a layman's point of view to see that their policies they may be accurate might not be accurate I don't think I'm in a position to judge them at the moment but it seems like they're doing something mm. and that although I cannot say whether that, that thing is good or bad that it's better than not doing anything. It yeah. seems like, and so that again, that shift in 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 the mindset of the people of, especially my mindset, for example, was the Tory Party is is now going towards the fact that okay, they they're taking these issues seriously and they're addressing them and doing something about them straight away, rather than making wishy washy vague points and mm. not enough practical uh, solutions. Mm. Change is needed. Are they to change? That that that's the sort of question. And then finally, it was just a very small point, but actually, it's not not a small point. But it was the language of Suella Braverman talking about the migration policy, sticking down on the fact that you know just because I'm a child of immigrants doesn't mean that I need to be pro-migration or pro-immigration at all, which is quite interesting. And above all of that, there was I don't know if you saw on Twitter, there was a man who was actually uh, escorted out of the conference. Um, It wasn't. um, I don't think it was Braverman's. the speech but it was during it was. oh it was, it was during speech. her speech yeah. and he was a London ended up being the uh, head of the London Assembly yeah. so this was a prominent conservative sort of voter and it wasn't even a hack or he was just what is the London Assembly sorry what is the London Assembly sorry it's the um, uh, it's basically the parliament for <laughs> London okay um, right. so it's where the mayor I guess is uh, accounted for for all of his work. Essentially a very high profile person in the Conservative Party and membership. Sorry about that. But he didn't even heckle. He was there and he thought that this uh, part of the speech was just unnecessary gender ideology. And so he mumbled, and it's quite on tape, he mumbled that this is wrong, this is uh, th- this is just gender politics. Um, and I guess he was pressing on the point of actually where's the real policy, where's the real change that's needed. It was a two-second interaction, very very subtle, and he was immediately escorted out. And not only escorted out, but his whole um, ID badge was ripped from him, and he he was put away. And it was quite alarming for quite a lot of people and the political commentators, seeing that this is actually almost a fascist um, way of handling your hecklers, fascist sort of way of handling your detractors, um, not really taking on notice of actually people in the Conservative Party themselves not now um, seeing their values, beliefs, and um, the policies needed aligned with the leaders of the Conservative Party. I don't know what you guys think about that. We have a fellow lawyer in training as well. Um, free speech? No free speech? Well, 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 well. That's a big topic. Um, look, you have to have free speech, uh, but at the end of the day, the question is, do we have ultimate and absolute free speech? And, you know, my answer, my personal opinion is we don't. And, uh, you know, uh, and we can't really have absolute free speech at the end of the day. Uh, it is always, um, if you want to use the word censored in, or uh, what's, an, what's another light word to use other than censored? Mm. Restricted, I guess. Restricted in some ways because you can't always speak about a, a anyone else and everyone else. It's always uh, the fact that um, it will hurt other people and uh, there will be some sentiments that will be hurt but um, 
ultimately we need to be uh, respectful of each other's opinions whether we agree or not and whether yeah. we uh, make uh, uh, the right decision or not because it's, you know we're, we're, we're in the situation that we're talking in right um, you know when I think of free speech I think I'm actually thinking of um, Hyde Park Corner where people are just right. there arguing yeah. trying to um, you know not do the right thing and trying to get under each other each other each other's skin i guess so in that sense uh you know you have to think about what is your motivation in saying these words and um yeah so in this circumstance you've prepared perhaps a week two weeks for this speech you're excited to give it yeah. you know you're gonna you try and get a round of applause from your audience despite mm-hmm. the fact that you're a nationally hated figure yeah you then hear that in the audience how would you want to ha- have him and handled in the audience i don't think she heard that did she? I don't, I don't think I, so either. I, I doubt she heard that. So I think it was just an overreaction uh, or maybe they, they were aware of his uh, previous sentiments mm-hmm. and that they just prepared for it. Because if you look at the video, security guards are just it, it behind him, right? It was quite... Oh, really quick. Yeah. Uh, so you just have to question whether maybe he was already speaking in a loud manner already as it was. So uh, you don't think it's perhaps necessarily reflective on... The fact that they might have wanted, they were prepared to just yeah, could, remove any heckles because they yeah, wanted a restricted environment. I guess so. Um, that's what I saw. I'm trying to get out. The cream. Well, I, I think that's living in the society that we've been told is the important religious freedom. The fact that we've gone to war with countries, or the fact that they don't have those freedoms, political freedoms, religious freedoms um, that we claim to have, and then to have this kind of thing happen is quite quite hypocritical in itself. Um, and actually, it's, it's it's one of the arguments that democracy fundamentally does not work because, as a, as a human as as humans in general, we are, you know, we're not great at keeping things equal as it is. We're not great equally, um, and we're not good at keeping things power balance equal, for example. And then it reminds me of of the Islamic system of, of politics and uh, the whole one party system, and, and you know, the Islamic economic uh, system as well, which is a whole other which is another whole other debate. But you know, it's got me thinking that. Time and time again, we're saying that democracy, as a theory, as a political model, it doesn't seem to be working. Um, and if it is working, there's so many hypocrisies and so many caveats to it that it just, you know, it's just it's not not seen. The current model of Western democracy, we can say, it seems to have as many flaws as benefits. And so, really, we should be looking at alternatives. What is it? Is it a theocracy like we have in Pakistan, for example, or is it you know what some other system, some Islamic uh, you know uh, leadership system? And that brings me on to a good point that in the next uh, couple of months, hopefully, um, there'll be you know a cornerstone uh, event at LSE, hopefully, talking about um, democracy, theocracy, the Islamic uh, political system, and so on and so forth. And so, if any of you guys are interested, you know, you can definitely keep an eye out. Uh, AMSA will be hosting that hopefully at LSE. Um, cheeky plug there. Sorry, I do apologize. No, we love that. But, yeah, but um, I think that's a really, really interesting academic and, and politically charged discussion as well. Um, and so I know I'm very. We haven't got much time in the left of the show. Um, we've got a few minutes. But if anyone really is interested in more of a theological and kind of academic discussion of that, definitely keep an eye for that event. And really interesting one. Brilliant. So, I mean, there's not much to say. The Tory part, the Conservative Party conference um, happened. It went, made some big splashes, big changes, and, and now it's just. 
to see whether it was enough for them to actually, you know, hold a majority in the vote, um, or actually are they just going to get ridiculously wiped out um, with the v- voting when it comes? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I do like the analogy where there's the changing of just the guards uh, to the same same people, but you know, let's just see what happens because I think people are speaking from what I've I've seen people are frustrated at what is happening um, it's a lot of frustration and going around and when frustration uh, keeps on growing there's things that uh, people start planning and it gets out of hand and we don't want it to get to that stage where people start taking the law into their own hand and um, do something which uh, stupid or which might affect everyone else greatly one interesting thing is um I've been taking a module on demography. Uh, one of my oppressors uh, is a very interesting demographer. Um, in fact, in fact, he. What will, is a demographer? demographer? Demographer looks at populations oh, and okay. demographics, as you can assume, but also models them, sees how they're improving the future and how that can impact public policies, health policies, development policies, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my oppressor was quite. Um, instrumental in the Balkans for example he's from Albania himself and designing questionnaires health questionnaires and kind of figuring out what the next big health issues were going to be in the Balkans and trying to figure out how to solve them before they happened mm. um, but we were talking about how you know as we know the UK and Japan and these countries are aging populations and from a health I've always read from a health point of view what does that mean what are the health implications of it you know what these are more likely to be uh, you know communicable and the whole demographic transition and the health transition theory which is that you know as the population changes, the burden of disease, the types of diseases they have go from being infectious diseases to kind of non-communicable diseases and Alzheimer's and so on and so forth, chronic conditions, etc. But, you know, if I, we think with a political hat on, that aging demographic means that you're going to have a lot more voters are in, you know, the 50 plus, 60 plus category. And so therefore, their views might not align with current views, for example. The concerns or their concerns are not the same as young people's concerns, for example. They might have concerns with their pensions, for example, whereas if you ask me about pensions, at this moment in time, I don't really care about pensions, mm. to be truth be told. Mm. Um, and so I didn't really get all the fuss, what the fuss was about pensions, whereas someone whose pension contributions, you know, as pension part has dropped from half a million to 200k, that is a big thing for them. And so it's interesting to see how... You know, in the upcoming uh, months, how the political parties they campaign for for the votes of those demographics, and how they tailor their policies towards demographics, will will we see uh, you know a move towards more kind of the, a focus on the old demographics, for example, and policies that might benefit them but not affect the younger voters, for example, um, or are we going to see change? As you said, that change that's going to bring some of the old demographic might not like that change for example and so I think it's a it's a very fine balance and I'd be interested to know your thoughts I know it's a little bit different from the discussion that we've had so far but what are your thoughts on how the population and the, the demographic of the population affect uh, the political kind of climate in terms of their needs on their the, the issues that are currently and the health concerns perhaps as it were yeah their, their needs and which policies will suit them because not all political policies will suit each demographic equally Agreed, agreed. And that's why in, in, in politics in particular, when you talk, you, you need to have policies that are sta- uh, st- uh, staggered and structured to each um, strata of society, each, each group. Um, but you typically see that con- uh, the tr- Conservative Party doesn't necessarily do that um, until recently when they're talking about banning smoking, which is obviously trying to affect the health and benefit the health of the younger generation. But extra bully um, dogs as well. You were, sorry? Other dogs as well, the extra bullies. Yes, yes, exactly that. Um, 
I don't think there is a focus on multi-generation um, policies uh, actually in politics because politics in itself is very short term. Mm. So there's and actually this is what Sunak was talking about, um, which was interesting. He 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 was quite critical of the system of politics where you don't have an appreciation, value, benefit of creating long-term change because then another party can come in and take credit for it, or you don't re- you know you're in power for about five years, four years, three years, even shorter than that if you're Liz Truss, and then you know you you, you want to make your impact, you want to make your legacy and so there's no sort of incentive to actually cater for such policies that actually you know address different um aspects of society i think the one of the biggest things policies that you can make is through the, the two extreme generations the younger generation and the older generation the older generation is um not having enough social care in this country they're creating a huge unnecessary burden on the health service because their health and well-being is getting poorer and the younger generation are entering a society that's not well fit for them so that's where we need to focus on um but it's always about incentives in politics and there's not necessarily much for that but then if you're arguing that if sunak is arguing that you know inherently the political system is flawed. Now, again, that brings back to my earlier point of does, is the Western model of you know modern democracy is that working? And do we need to change? Do we need to go to a one-party system, for example, a two-party system, so on and so forth? And the second point is that if inherently, for example, political parties are focusing on short-term policies, and by the very nature of it, they will tailor their policies towards the most voters they can get, for example, which in an aging population as the UK. You know, is the old demographic? Does that mean that it's inherent that it's it's going to have? It's you know, it's inherently means that the young generation will be disillusioned because the policies are not focused towards them, the policies aren't tailored towards them, and so naturally they're going to become disillusioned in politics and have a mistrust of of prime ministers and and governments and so on and so forth, mm. and we're going to see that social unrest. Then I know it's a lot of ifs and ifs and ifs, but if we see that cascade chain, you know, mm. it all kind of leads down to the fact that. This this disillusion of the youth is not you can't be fixed by having a few policies. It's almost almost seems like it's inherent in the system. Yeah, yeah. I, I I mean we see that with the housing market, right? So you've got thirty year olds, thirty plus year olds who can't necessarily climb up their ladder. They don't have any social mobility. They're not. Why are you looking at me? Sorry. Thirty. No, but anyone who's a new graduate or a new job in you know twenty years, thirty years ago, you were very easily able to mm. just get a car, get yeah. a job, mm. and comfortably live your life, and you know have that. Have that. That whole social contract has now completely broken. And again, it's this distrust in the political powers that be. But when we talk about politics, we cannot not talk about economics the really when we say oh okay the political model is the issue here and you know because it's so short-termism sunak and the conservative government yes we had 13 years but they never thought they were going to be here for 13 years and they never created meaningful change it's actually to do with the economic system which is to do with gdp the fact that actually every um, policy that we make everything that we yearn for is for material growth uh, financial growth but actually that is completely in opposite to human health human well-being and human flourishing, right? I can increase my arms sales. I can increase my trades for arms. I can uh, increase funding into um, the war industry, the military industrial complex. Why? Because that's finance. That's finance. And that's increasing my country's GDP. What I'm not caring about is the post-traumatic stress disorder that I'm creating in uh, the society over there that are then going to increase the immigration and uh, the people are going to come here. I'm not talking about the actual bullet wounds that uh, that are being caused by my sales and how I'm going to need to extradite uh, X number of uh, medical professionals from this country to get over there. So there's this no 
consciousness on human value and flourishing within our economic model. And there's been a whole academic conversation about actually we need to get, get away from GDP. We need to actually now put think about um, human health and well-being in our economics because ultimately economics serves that. And that's exactly what I was talking about earlier with my with my, my, my explanation of Amartya Sen's theory of economics and Hajun Chang's model of economics. Hajun Chang, like I said, the modern you know the modern economic theory is that GDP rules all economic growth drives all development and human development is for is you know based solely on economic indicators and economic growth mm. whereas the older model or the Amartya Sen model again it's not completely on social uh, terms it doesn't completely take into account uh, health it does to a certain extent but it's more about freedoms political mm. freedoms social freedoms personal freedoms mm. and so again I find that quite interesting not completely all-encompassing but I think it's very interesting that you know Amartya Sen who won the Nobel Prize for his theory of, uh, of economics he said that actually economic growth is not the be-all and the end-all GDP per capita is not the be-all end-all it does not say uh, you know GDP per capita does not denote whether a country is developed or not you know there are a range of different factors that we need to look at Qatar for example might have a better GDP per capita than you know another country for example but their the social freedoms their personal freedoms there may be very different and again that's but then that brings into a whole other debate of what our personal freedoms personal freedoms for you might be different to personal freedoms for someone mm. else for example um, and I, I, I don't think we need to even make it that complicated Cicero said you know so many years ago when he was in power as a Roman emperor health of the people is the highest law mm. when I found that out I was like wow why, why why haven't we actually changed that and I think when we talk about policy and we talk about politics and we talk about conservative party conference and you know the need for change and whatever else ultimately it's going back to the basic understanding that actually politics is to serve the people and human flourishing mm. and when we get to that when we actually find have someone who raises the consciousness of saying that our economic model has to change we need to value human health and flourishing because in the past 13 years and more that's what's been decreasing and you know human health is actually a um, fiscal multiplier for economics you're good and fit for well-being you're going to have a better productivity work you might not need a four-day work week because we're able to actually just you know you're feeling empowered and you have good health care and you can just you know enjoy the work and the work week that you have so i think that's the big thing that's the next big thing whether we reach it or not whether we have someone brave or not to actually stand on stage and say that that's the upheaval that we need um, is in my view what needs to happen so basically what you're saying is the next Prime Minister should be a doctor with a background in public health uh, that's <laughs> not me but, uh, absolutely um, you know th- there are people f- again the Quran talks about this as well I know we're meshing and melding quite a lot of topics but the Quran insists on actually having people who are the best in your society mm. chosen for um, leaderships yeah. those who yearn for leadership positions are the most that are the least likely suited mm. to actually get to positions of power so it's people who are there to serve the people mm. And that emphasis on leadership, I mean, his own list reminds me of, of his sermon a few weeks ago where he talked about uh, leadership. I mean, he mentioned that point exactly that people who yearn for leadership, for example, um, they are not the leaders, for example. The real leaders are those who serve for the purpose and work for the aim uh, of the work itself alone. Um, and that is the only motivation for, for, for being becoming or for being for being leaders. And again, again, brings up as a point that his holiness and the religious principles of Islam can be applied at every age, to every people, at every time, at any point in the world. Um, and again, that's, that's the beautiful thing about uh, Islam. And again, brings back to the point about your, your point about health being the biggest priority. Um, we have the 17 Sustainable Development Goals that were you know that were that were if uh, no one saw I'm rolling my eyes yeah the carry <laughs> really, on I, I really want to have this conversation with you because we had a big sound <laughs> on the bear about this again I'm I'm very much your junior in terms of all, all this world but 
the big debate, I mean, we were arguing that there was no point of the SDGs, for example. Mm. The, and the 17 goals, people might not be aware of them. I'm sure you can explain better than me, but you know, the focus on health, poverty, um, freedoms, gender equality. It's in absolute terms, Omar. Yeah, you, if you, I, don't know, I, so, you need to explain uh, this a bit so more. So by 2030, the UN said, we want to end poverty. You know, we want to... How realistic is that? We want to, you know, no one should be starving to death. Mm. We, you know, we should have extremely good health and well-being in our society. So they've had these huge, you know, aspirational but absolute goals um, by that, by the, in seven uh, years time which organisation is this the United, oh, the United Nations oh, okay. so they started with the Millennium Development Goals which was made a few years ago uh, which was only nine I believe uh, and now there's 17 of them mm. and each country is supposed to achieve certain targets and I believe none of them targets have been met um, and we're at the halfway some point some of them actually have have gone down since gone COVID down. exactly yeah. so, again, I guess my point is that we've talked about all these indicators and, and development and what we should focus on so what the UN deems to be, you know, what we should focus on the SDGs, is there any point to that? And is there a solution to that? I might have one, but I'll let you speak on it first. A solution is only defined by its problem, right? Mm. So if what, what is the problem in society? Is it that we have, um, you know, poverty or whatever else? In Islam, you're going to have different, you know, scales of lifestyles, in fact, and whatever else, but actually you can improve health and well-being. And to me, it's not that you have to work in silos and just work on these disparate and different separate um, goals and then somehow magically by 2030, boom, we're in utopia. Mm. That that doesn't happen. And I, I it just simply goes back to the economic model for me. Um, you'll remind me again, of the you know when I was reading a lot, a lot of these academic papers, ultimately the biggest ill in our society is our economics. Islam talks about this much. You know this is why Islam has such a huge emphasis on not having interest. And there's huge you know sort of almost vivid and vulgar metaphors in the Quran and in the Hadith about what actually interest is like. And you know the, the Holy Prophet said that it's almost as if you, you know a, a man is sleeping with his mother. And the reason why is because of the generational impact that you're causing on people because of the interest rates. But this even deeper and more profound meaning to it that I won't speak on but it's uh, to me it's always the economic system that comes back to it it's the economic system that fails the political system it's the political system that fails the younger generation who are unable to you know buy appropriate food buy buy you know the necessities that they need in life to you know achieve what they want to achieve as it were I mean ultimately what are your thoughts Exactly, I think you know something has to change because, like I said, the point made it's not working so far. The SGGs they had a recent conference to, to talk about the progress, and they, they you know they said very clearly it's not working. You know the goals are there, the indicators are not being met, and we're going backwards since COVID happened. And so my kind of idea was um, why don't we have flexible development goals or flexible development transformations in which we're not working towards an end point. We're having these ideals that we're saying we should end poverty, and this is how we can do it, for example, and also focusing on certain goals at a time 17 goals at a time and having saying to a country that you've got to do all these things is, is so different you know the, the vast inequality in countries a country may have a great healthcare system but not such a great economy uh, you know economy we have examples of, of countries like Cuba and Kerala uh, and these uh, and these kind of uh, small nations which have achieved good you know uh, global health uh, good mm. good health public health mm. at a low cost for example mm. but they might be lacking in the, in the GDP per capita for example and so it's like every country has their own areas where they need to kind of work on the development and so the idea of having flexible goals is that we focus on certain goals every year for example and we focus on those and each country chooses their own goals to focus on for example um, and in that way we're kind of aiming for justice and equity rather than equality in, in our goals and I like that because and I think oh, this is like a life rule always look at the language because language is important the sustainable development goals is very interesting because it's like everyone needs to work together to make sure that we end po- who caused poverty who exacerbates poverty mm. 
it's not the lower middle income countries. They're the worst benefactors of poverty. Their poverty has been inflicted upon them by the neoliberal po- policies that we have, mm. the economic and political policies that we inflict upon them. But actually, let's all every year fly off to New York and uh, get to the UN headquarters and talk about how we can solve the problem. When it becomes a problem, it's a we problem. But actually, the initiators of the problem is very singular. And you never see that. It's the diffusion of responsibility. But when you talk about flexible goals, that's interesting because what you do is you empower and encourage um, uh, uh, individual nations to actually have self-determination and say, actually, this is what's wrong with our issues. And we're going to create a global agenda for this and make ourselves accountable on the global stage. That's more appropriate. Exactly. And in the whole point about colonialism having affected so much inequality, I mean, you look at South America, the areas that you know the areas that have inequality in for example the rich areas the poor areas are pretty much unilaterally you know they're unilaterally because of the fact that where the early settlers decided to settle along where they couldn't settle for example and so on and so forth and there's a whole rich history and and you know um, the impact of colonialism and so on and so forth that we can talk about for ages and ages and ages but the very fact is that a lot of the inequality in the world today has been caused by western nations and like you said rightly for example when it comes to causing the problems then you know you know they can cause the problems but when it comes to solving them you know it's suddenly we, they're also implementing their solutions onto other countries as well, mm. which again I find that you know I find that very kind of illogical. I, it, it always for me just reminds me back to like the principles of Islam and just talking about this is this is why the, His Holiness. Um, Azimuddin Masrur Ahmed, the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, always talks about at every level, in almost every speech, equality, the importance of exercising peace, because you cannot have peace when you don't have justice. By having justice, you're making sure that you understand, respect and see the issues and struggles that everyone in every society is facing, and you help alleviate that. That's what everyone does. You wake up in the morning and you want to make sure that you're living a life that's less burdened than the day before, and that you're living a more peaceful life. But when you have a systemic issue that prevents you from doing that, that becomes a burden. And then you have, you know, a distrust and then you have unrest and then you have social issues and then you have social you know upheavals as it were and then there's disorder in society but if you have peace and you instill justice and through that we have equitable principles that that's you know the roadmap to peace in life that's you know you've hit you've struck gold there essentially um but i'm not really sure we can exhaust the topic more you know it's like the typical three men on a podcast just talking 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 talking, talking. but um i'm wondering if you guys have um anything else to pivot to well, we can. Um, I mean, we've, we've we've taken a different road than we expected, really. But it is uh, how it is. When there is a flow, we we keep going with the flow. But you know, it's um, it was really interesting to hear. Um, I think this is high level, high level global health review stuff that we we did at the end uh, plan to have, but I didn't think it was going to be this complicated. <laughs> even I zoned zoned up for a bit, like what is happening. Uh, but no, um, I think um, it's been uh, it's been a great show for, uh, today. For, for all of us uh, we started off uh, with the news roundup and then uh, went into um, a lot around uh, money I guess a four day work weekend that extended uh, quite a lot and then we highlighted it off uh, on the um, uh, youth convention that we had um, the National Youth Convention for the UK community and then the Tory party conference and from there we spoke about the UN's uh, uh, global sustainable goals uh, but yeah no, that, that that's how the conversation uh, will be going and, and you know to add to it I guess um you know how will we, how will we be hitting those goals when uh, you know year on year we see more global conflicts uh, starting to appear it, in when it's supposed to be you know we, we're supposed to have the answer to all of these things by now that we are more. Uh, 
knowledgeable and intelligible and um, mature than our previous generation with so much there was so much facility that we have in technology that you know at this day and age there aren't supposed to be any wars and internal conflicts but we see year on year that every year there's a new conflict that arises out of nothing uh, and out of mm. well you say nothing but well I, I say nothing but uh, the the deep-rooted uh, cultural and historical factors that still people hold on to hold on to themselves but, but I think there j- just very quickly mm. you, you're quite right you hit you you hit money there by saying that there's a sense of futility mm. there's this paradox that we live in an age with the greatest material wealth ever we live in an age with the greatest scientific understanding ever and yet in that same age it's harder to feel like you can attain good health nutrition and well-being so I guess, and it's harder to attain a peaceful life so i guess then where does that lead us to because we see the rise of I, I say atheism because there is because people are moving away from god there is no uh, connection to uh, uh, the, the, the almighty you know we need to see that th- there has to be a connection with because why because when we are believing people we automatically think of that we have especially in Islam we have two principles that we live by the rights that we have to, uh, that rights we owe to God and rights we owe to God's mankind and if we act on those principles then there's no way on earth that we would be having these conflicts or quarrels mm. with other countries or uh, conflicts that are taking place around the world I, you just reminded me Joe Rogan on his uh, podcast said and I don't no. know if it was very recent or not but the clip was just going viral and he, he just tried to articulate and he said I just don't understand there's not yet someone who's sort of come up with a path and he was very struggling with it. he's like a pathway to life mm. or a code a code to life someone who's really high up and understands the global issue any religious person is going well actually we, we have quite a few manuals and code code books for life so yeah. we, we really do have you know um, a sort of blueprint to how, how to lead a successful life how to ensure that there's um, a good society good country good well-being for your neighbours and then just a good world in general right um, and so I think that implicitly recognizing the value and need for recognizing that if there is a creator the engineer behind all of this then surely he's given us a blueprint on how to successfully lead our personal lives but lives that we share with with each other and creating societies and uh, communities that can actually help one another flourish in every aspect as well yeah i agree and my whole point about development i guess i I was going towards the point that we we base development on the indicators of economics social freedom, political freedom, personal freedom, but really, have we tried framing development in the context of morals, ethics, uh, and kind of religion, really? And this is something that, you know, might be controversial, might be against everything the Western world teaches us about the importance of secularity and the importance of being, you know, uh, non-faith, of non-faith, for example. But really, do we need to go back and recognise actually religion is not backwards, religion is the way forward now. Um, And that is the indicator for development. That will leave us with uh, some thought for our listeners. And again, you can join us next week. Uh, same time, 10 to 12, we will have our other team presenting their part of the show. Uh, but, you know, thank you to uh, both of you. Thank you to the listeners. And uh, thank you to the team behind as well, the technician and our producers for allowing us to do the show. Uh, we we'll only have about 30 seconds there, but if you're living in London, Enjoy the weather. If you're outside of London, well, enjoy the weather as well because winter is surely coming and uh, let's see what it has in store for us. But other than that, that is me to say Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.
Hazrat Abu Huraira, may Allah be pleased with him, narrates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, Satan ties three knots at the back of the head of any of you when he falls asleep. On every knot he professes and exhales the following words.